My co-housing was in the parade last year on 4th of July. And when we were going through the parade, the MC said, here's Nevada City co-housing, an experiment in living. And I went up to the MC afterwards and I said, Pat, you know what? Those single family houses equidistant across the landscape, atomized and estranged are the experiment. And to what extent that experiment lasts is the bigger question, frankly. We've been living in tribes and communities forevermore. At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome everybody to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that matter for the experiences of later life. I am Susie Stadler, the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, which produces this program. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on all major platforms. Last but not least, I would also like to encourage others to follow the example of our loyal sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza and the Walnut Foundation. As a reminder, 80% of our work is done by volunteers, and we would love to grow our capacity with more funding. Co-housing and high-functioning communities has moved into focus for many people, especially during pandemic times, when we're all realizing that our local communities are really our social network by default. And I'm very pleased to welcome Chuck Durrett, an architect and expert in co-housing and community-enhanced design. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you very much. So let's jump into the conversation. Chuck, you have really imported co-housing to the US from Denmark in the 1970s. There are currently, if I'm not mistaken, 600 co-housing communities in Denmark and truly has become an alternative form of housing. And there are 165 co-housing communities in the US. 55 of those have been built by your architecture firm, McCarmont and Durrett Architects. You have truly left a big imprint on co-house and continue to do so. Do you think this will ever become an alternative lifestyle in the U.S. similar to Denmark? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Good big question to start with there, which I like to talk about actually, because I'm always amazed how many people don't want to talk about the Danish experience. I want to talk about it as often as possible. I spend a lot of time on the phone with them and have a couple of canceled flights that I'm anxious to get back and even learn more. I was just on the phone the other day and they're saying they're running somewhere between 600 and 650, getting closer to 650 now. And what's even bigger than co-housing there is co-housing inspired communities. It'll far eclipse the co-housing, whether it's nonprofit housing projects that feel more and look more like a co-housing community and to some extent operate closer to an old community. In Denmark, they like to say, we're not actually creating anything new, frankly. We're simply consciously and extremely consciously creating what used to happen naturally. The single family house is very much the aberrant, if you will. In fact, my co-housing was in the parade last year 
on 4th of July on our pickup, adequately distanced, etc. And when we were going through the parade, the MC said, here's Nevada City co-housing, an experiment in living. And I went up to the MC afterwards and I said, Pat, you know what? Those single family houses equidistant across the landscape, atomized and estranged are the experiment. And to what extent that experiment lasts is the bigger question, frankly. We've been living in tribes and communities forevermore. We have this project right now, which I'm extremely excited about because it's an Indian tribe in Virginia, Chickahominy. While I was back there working on that project, one of the chiefs said to me, Chuck, we had two people die in a nursing care last year. Nursing care is characterized generally as a bad marriage between a prison and a hospital. People don't get to leave and have to do everything on a prescribed schedule, et cetera. But the point is, he said that was not due to COVID and that's not who we are. We don't die in institutions in this country, estranged again and far from the people we love. So get us a senior co-housing organized as soon as possible so that we can end right next to a school and an intergenerational co-housing. In other words, help us define a modern day village. And in many ways, that's co-housing in the U.S. where people are saying, Chuck, let's make a modern day village, which in many ways, in many of the important ways, don't look anything like once upon a time villages because, you know, we don't have the same kind of hierarchy and we don't have the same kind of injustices at some level. We have other injustices probably. But anyway, this Chickahominy tribe is highly motivated to reconstruct the village because now in that part of Virginia, every household is basically a track house in this tribe. They live within a few miles of each other, but all the houses are single family houses on five acre lots. The antithesis of what they used to live in, there's great sketches of their original villages and they were extremely tight villages, extremely tight architecturally. And they're saying, let's make that happen again. We're gonna probably get a school, a 30 unit senior co-housing, and 30-unit intergenerational co-housing on 20 acres, and it's going to feel like a village. That sounds great. You'll create density and proximity for people. One of the moms in another tribe that I was working with said, Chuck, we did better as a tribe when we lived in trailer courts because then the granddaughter can walk to the grandmother's house after school. Now, where they're living in these single-family houses quite distant from each other, kids can't actually walk along the roads, these 52 foot wide roads that feel like highways, just bad planning everywhere, you know, default planning everywhere. And that's how I would describe the whole America right now, just a hell of a lot of default planning, you know, based on what the fire department wants and some ill-begotten zoning codes. And what the developer wants. Yeah. Well, it's always been the banks, the businessmen and the bureaucrats. As a fellow architect, I'm also especially interested Do you have design principles you apply to your co-housing projects? How do they differ from regular developments? I just finished a 400-page book where I did everything I could to lay out all the design principles that I learned in Denmark over 13 months, actually two years, and all the design principles that I've learned in the last 35 years of designing co-housing communities. So I hope you guys consider picking up. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called Community Enhanced Design, Co-Housing and Other High-Functioning Neighborhoods. In the pre-interview, you said that you approach your project more like an anthropologist rather than a designer. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's certainly my favorite part of my whole career. You know, 
thinking about the culture and the values and the experiences of these people who come to the table and not only what they want or they think they want, but most importantly, through the conversation, who they aspire to become. And there is a lot of culture change embedded in that conversation around sharing. I'm 34 households and we have one lawnmower and shared cars and hundreds and hundreds of things that we share together. It seems to be impossible for a regular neighborhood to accomplish. And yet when you come to the table with living lighter on the planet in mass, it's just simply more possible. It's so hard to live lighter on the planet all by yourself to the point that it becomes almost rhetoric. And sometimes you have to actually look at two different people's magazine subscriptions to know which ones thinks they're living lighter on the planet, which ones thinks they're not. What's interesting to me is that most architects get gray hair when they think designing with people because there are just so many different opinions from do I want a big kitchen, a little kitchen, this color, that color. How do you get through this and what's your secret about participatory design? It's a good question because it is amazing how often I run into this thing. Oh my God, how can you sit down with 35, 45 people and hammer out a site plan and hammer out a common house plan? And even more important, hammer out three or four house plans that satisfy everybody. The key thing is doing it together. I mean, I would never propose anything for any group. People always ask me, Chuck, you've designed 50 site plans now for co-housing. Why don't you just design it? I have two things. One is it'll never be as good if I design it myself. I know that if I get these people together for four days, this site plan will just really sing and we'll have turned over hundreds of rocks and we'll made hundreds of decisions and it'll be very, very fine tuned and it'll work to everybody's liking. And the second reason I don't do that is because I need the group to own this thing. We have so many huge variances and exceptions to the rules that we want to accomplish that I can't accomplish them unless the future residents can articulate themselves why we did this. Although the zoning code says they want two parking places per house, why we think we're going to get away with one parking place per house, or in the case of Portland, one parking place total for 30 houses. These kind of things take a lot of ownership so that you can convince the neighbors and then convince the planning commission and then convince the city council. And that culture change doesn't happen unless you have a lot of people on the same page. I mean, one individual on that page won't do. I was just explaining to somebody the other day where I live, it's an impossible town to get projects approved on. I mean, it's like they really want to be Carmel. It's Nevada City, California, and they really want to be Carmel. The three projects before us had been declined, including 34-unit single-family house neighborhood. And we were coming to the table with a 34-unit co-housing and then 14 private houses. The only way we got that is we had 150 people in City Hall that night. And over and over and over again, we not only need the 50 residents, but we need all of their friends and family in the room saying, why wouldn't you do this? This makes too much sense to not do. Because four or five people, City Council embedded in their history, embedded in their petty politics, listening to neighbors, et cetera, will just default on the rearview mirror. And these guys have got their feet firmly in the future and they have to help the bureaucrats move along. That's a great example of community activism. I'm curious in 
the many co-housing projects you have done in this participatory design process. Are there goals which typically emerge across projects, you know, similar goals? Very much. Basic human needs, really. I mean, parents will say, I want a safe place for my kid, and I need a safe place to communicate with other parents in the neighborhood so that I can become a better parent. I often feel where I live, there's 12 amazing parents and 12 parents who are still learning to be amazing parents. And that cross-pollination is critical. It requires an easy place to walk out of your front door, an easy place to sit, spontaneous places to sit. Other consistent goals are things like spontaneous socializing. I can readily bump into a neighbor and have a meaningful conversation that I thought was going to last one minute, ended up lasting one hour, and yet shifted my sense of who this person was and what my day was going to become as a result. The 30, 40 goals that come up in every community, for the most part, are almost universal. So that again begs the question, why go through the 30, 40 minutes to consent on those goals? Well, they have to hear each other. They have to believe each other. They have to modify each other if it comes to that. In other words, if there's goals that are not consistent with what everybody thinks is a good idea, then they discuss those and they might modify them. And that only takes 30, 40 minutes. People think, oh my God, this stuff must take forever. It's amazing. If you set it up right, they're right there at the end of your sleeve, you know, your intentions for living a better life, communicating better, more easily, having life more practical, more convenient, more interesting, more fun, more economical, more healthy. I mean, those things are right there, basically. But to hear your other neighbors confirm that that's also what they want. And in the context of confirming that, they will hold each other accountable over the next 11 days of workshops just around designing the product. It's usually about 12 days. Then it's easy for everybody to refer back. Remember when we said we wanted it to be more sociable by design or however they characterize that? Well, that usually has big manifestations, for example, putting all the parking in one location. Nobody's driving to their own private house. I mean, that comes right out of their goals. Living lighter on the planet, a multifamily housing project done right has about 300 square foot of asphalt per parking place. Single family house neighborhoods have thousands of square feet of asphalt per parking place. So, you know, it's easy to accomplish your goals, real goals, if you are prepared to talk about them. It's very easy. And once you put on the table, well, this is a 300 square foot per parking place solution. This is a thousand square foot parking place solution. Everybody looks to their goal up on the wall and they say, well, living lighter on the planet. Which one is it? So I'm also curious, 12 days is quite some time to invest, but you know, it's your home and your future. But I'm wondering, and I've heard this come up in discussions how much time, for instance, do you spend on meetings, socializing in your co-housing community? I like that question because that's the biggest difference between doing co-housing in Denmark and doing co-housing in the U.S. is the Danes love to do the social math. And frankly, nobody does the social math better than they do. I mean, they talk about it. They think about it all the time, especially the people who are professionally involved with co-housing. For example, we have about 450 people hours a week in my common house of neighbors using the building, whether it's dinner or yoga or childcare or playing musical instruments or playing pool or doing our laundry or hosting guests. One way or the other, we have about 450 people 
New Year's week, we have about 650 people hours. The co-housing community that I lived in Denmark had about 750 people hours. I mean, they really were firing on all cylinders all the time because they had after school in their common house and that generated a lot of people hours there. And so that works out to be about five or six hours per person per week in the common house. And that's a lot of community building week after week. You know, there's a lot of love that happens there. I mean, hey, I'm going for a walk this evening. You want to go? I'm going skiing this weekend. Do you want to go? I'm taking my kids to the zoo this weekend. Do you want me to take your kids? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The dinner and the sustenance is more or less an excuse to get together, but it leads to profound ancillary activities that are, again, right back to basic life that lead to more healthy, cheaper, all the rest. Yes. So you mentioned senior co-housing, and of course, you have also written a book about that. And co-housing was a baby boomer generation movement. I'm folding two questions into one. Number one is, why do you think there is more traction in senior co-housing now? Is it because the baby boomers grow older? That's something they are more familiar with. It's part of their attitude. And the other one is, do you have as many young people, professionals, et cetera, being interested in co-housing as you have older adults? Oh, yeah. I mean, the majority is still families that are interested in co-housing, and it's good reasons why. I mean, the ease of raising a family in co-housing is quite different than the difficulty of raising one in a single family house, especially if you don't want your kids watching TV all the time. Kate and I moved into co-housing because we only wanted to have one kid, but our kid, Jesse, who happened to be extremely social, it would have been abusive for her to live in a single family house by herself. And now she has 36 cousins that you know, she adores and they adore her. So it's just a huge difference for families living in co-housing than it isn't. Seniors were pretty late to come to the table. Co-housing got started in Denmark in 1972 and senior co-housing got started in 1985. And the interesting thing about that is the seniors that were doing this course there called Study Group One, the last of the 10 sessions, they would go visit other housing arrangements and try to figure out which one made sense to them. They would visit assisted care and various senior housing arrangements. And they would visit these single family houses that were entirely remodeled with handicap ramps and bathrooms with all the grab bars and whistles and alarms and all that stuff. And then they would also visit a co-housing community, which was mostly young families at that time, 1985. And the big aha was, look what we could accomplish if we were proximate. And we cared about similar things about health or whatever. And this is a place that makes sense for my grandkids to visit as opposed to you know, assisted care, which makes no sense. Grandkids hate going to those kinds of environments. It's just not interesting. So it started off with the notion that if I lived around people that I know and care about and support, it'll be a whole different environment. Well, they started by thinking about proximity and then they put two and two together and saw that that led towards knowing each other, caring about each other and supporting each other. So I'm curious if part of the motivation for senior housing is also shared caregiving. And if in the planning for a senior co-housing community, you actually have housing or homes also for caregivers. Well, yes. And, you know, I just finished a state-of-the-art co-housing in Port Townsend, Washington, and they built an incredibly awesome apartment for their caregiver, their co-caregiver of 28 units. 
They started that project average age 72 and a half. So it was obvious and inevitable that caregivers were going to be necessary. So anyway, they built this state-of-the-art apartment. And I think every senior co-housing project I've been involved with has built an apartment for a caregiver. And the whole notion is the caregiver who might work a total of 20 hours a week taking care of Mrs. Jones for 10 hours and Mr. Smith for 10 hours, but the other 20 hours is going to school or working at the assisted care down the street or you know, something along those lines, or might be semi-retired themselves, or might be a retired nurse and just need some extra money. So that has worked out really well for lots and lots of reasons, including the fact that when you have a caregiver that everybody knows on site, they feel more accountable to taking care of Mrs. Smith and Mr. Jones to the point that they simply get a lot better care as a result. The other cool thing is that they might start to take care of Mr. Johnson a few years from now, and they knew that guy before he was drooling. So they knew that person as a whole person. Caregivers who are stuck giving care to people who are already losing their capabilities, or more importantly, people who are only cared for once they've lost their capabilities, are not respected in the same way as when they were known as whole human beings. You shared with me this informal way of caregiving when you lived in the co-housing in Emeryville with your elder neighbor who you visited every day or read to every day. This kind of opportunities which also are presented through proximity and co-housing. The first co-housing project you did was Muir Common, built in 1991. Has this become sort of a natural occurring retirement community? And is there anything new a senior co-housing community can learn from their experience or there's no sort of knowledge transfer between co-housing communities? Oh, there's lots of attempts to facilitate knowledge between co-housing and it happens to some extent. Yes, they're becoming a naturally occurring retirement community. But that whole term does have a sort of a definition started in Boston where, you know, they just happen to be people who live in their single family houses and they called it a natural occurring retirement community. But what do they have to learn? Interestingly, same thing happened in Denmark. The community I moved in had 60 kids when they moved in and now has less than 10. And it happens to be one of those kinds of neighborhoods where you're not motivated to move out of if you can. We've had seven persons die in our co-housing community since we moved in 18 years ago. We moved in with 21 seniors and 37 kids. And Meg just died three weeks before her 100th birthday because several of them moved in quite old. But they were cared for on the, on the grounds till their 11th hour. And, you know, yes, I read Meg, I mean, Margaret, the front page of the paper every day for seven months and brought her her coffee. And that kind of care on site, I felt was an honor, frankly. It was very ennobling. And I was really, really busy at the time, probably five or six co-housing projects on the drawing board. And yet I had no qualms about stopping for a half an hour and read her the paper and bring her her coffee. So that's how rich life can be. Where I live, we have a couple of seniors that, you know, Lloyd falls down at three in the morning and Leo will call me up and say, hey, Chuck, can you come help? And I'll get a couple of guys and we'll go over there and put Lloyd back in bed. And that's what a functioning neighborhood does, basically, as opposed to what... They have no interest in calling the fire department who shows up with a siren and red flashing lights and gets all the neighbors all uptight. 
and and you know four uniform guys come in the in their bedroom and put them back in bed i mean just think about the ridiculous tax dollars that goes into that scenario too when it's really not necessary it's really not i mean sure if lloyd really hurt himself we would call 911 normally he was going to take a pee and he fell down this is your understanding also of a high functioning community sort of self help in the community You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Let's go to some of the questions. Janice or Janice was asking, what would you see as the smallest land size and housing unit size to be feasible for co-housing? Well, there's an excellent co-housing community that we just designed in beautiful downtown Santa Cruz on 0.24 acres. After just finishing that project, I have a hard time doing one on a smaller piece of property. Let's put it that way. 19 units, it was very much a Rubik's cube. Also the smallest housing unit size, like studio or one bedroom or, you know. You could obviously do a studio. You know, the, the challenge is too often that those studios cost as much as a one bedroom just because most of the money is not in the lumber. Most of the money is in the land and other things like that. But anyway, we just finished a 70 unit project, which is not co-housing, but it's very inspired by co-housing in Napa County, very affordable. All 100 residents they only pay one third of their social security checks. But anyway, there were 70 units of 450 square foot one bedroom cottages. And I find that to be right there in terms of, you know, honoring people's need for personal space. And then they have a 4,000 square foot common house, which is great because it takes a lot of pressure off the single family house, especially if you have a spouse and a grandchild staying with you. You know, one bedroom house gets pretty tight and you need that other real estate to make that work. The other square footages like the common house really complements those tiny houses too with something, whether it's an exercise room or the laundry room or a big gourmet kitchen for those special events. And Thanksgiving, for example, when you want to have a lot of people over, you can check out the common house or the whole communities during uh, dinner like that. So anyway, 450 is the smallest house that I like to design, but I have designed smaller ones, you know, 300 square foot per studios where really the kitchen dining living is one tiny room and then there's a bed off to the corner and it all comes down to what the group can afford. And Jenny's clarified number of units. How many individual homes do you need? I'm glad that got clarified because again, that comes down to the social math. The Danes are very clear. Don't have co-housing communities where you have more than 50 adults because consensus gets really difficult and almost all decisions are made by consensus. But try to have it as close to 50 adults as you can. When you have that many people, every individual in the community will have at least five or six close friends and that really serves each and every individual. Everybody's in the village, that's fine. Everybody's in the community, but it really pays to have people that when you come home from work on a Friday night and you've just had the week from hell and your boss is a jerk and you want to drink a couple beers with somebody, there's five or six options in that regard. And they would also say, try not to have co-housing with less than 15 units that runs about 25 adults. And the reason is if you have less than 25 adults, 
then there's unfortunately a probability you'll be fine community mates. You know, you'll have dinner together and all the rest, but also from a probability point of view, you will have probably one or two people who don't make three or four friends there. I lived in a project in the Bay Area for 12 years, 25 adults, and there was one guy who I never really felt connected with any other individual in that co-housing community. It wasn't that he was that eccentric, but he was eccentric enough to make that probability not work for him, basically. He's still there, and he likes it, otherwise he would have moved. But I'm always sad that he didn't have the kind of connection that everybody else there did have. And it's just probability. Those numbers are completely arbitrary, but probability always plays a real role. And probably you have some experience having done so many units now, how does plays out over time. So there's a specific question from Adrian regarding senior co-housing. How is senior co-housing perhaps with a caregiver unit financed? Besides the mortgage, is there a type of homeowner's monthly fee? Well, luckily for co-housing, the financing of the whole thing falls right into the category of what they do in condominiums. For example, in condominiums, there's all kinds of potential for common amenities, and that just becomes part of your house price and your mortgage. In general, the real estate, that apartment that I was talking about, is paid for basically when you buy your condo. That's just another amenity. You have access to this caregiver unit. But the caregiver cost itself is paid by the residents who need the care. So they pay for that themselves. There are some questions regarding universal design and also how designing for intergenerational living is different from senior co-housing. I'm a big fan of this this program that the Danes came up with, which is called Study Group One. They have this saying in Denmark, if you ask 100 seniors whether you'd want to move into senior co-housing, maybe one would say yes. But if you ask 100 seniors who've been through this program that they do there at the common library or something like that, which is called study group one, where you talk about the issues of getting older actively with 20 other seniors, you know, and how to age successfully and what it takes to age successfully and around all the emotional issues and the physiological issues and the financial issues, et cetera. If you ask hundred of those people, those graduates, that 10 week course, would you live in senior housing? About 40% of them will say yes. So There is a real consciousness raising that helps set seniors up for success in this regard. So as a consequence, they they always want one-story houses, for example. They're out of denial. I am getting older and they want more handicapped bathroom and handicapped kitchen. You know, they are proactive. There's three things that comes from study group one, conscious of the issues, out of denial, and proactive. They've got both feet in the future. I was doing three senior projects at the same time at one point, and two of them had taken study group one and one of them hadn't. And uh, the two who had taken it had both feet in the future all the time. The one who hadn't had one foot in the future and one foot in the past. They were half the time they were looking at the rear view mirror. Oh, I used to be able to do this. And they were still in the denial. I think I still can. I can still do those stairs. I can still do this. I can still do that. And sure, they may be able to do it just fine, but Who knows what it looks like five years from now and 10 years from now. And if it's a multi-floor story by necessity, then they have an elevator, for example. But those things don't happen in intergenerational causing anywhere near as much. Those kind of provisions for elderhood. Rain's question sort of relates. He said, Chuck, can you comment on any generational differences you're seeing between the senior co-housing pioneers of a decade ago versus those starting today? 
Yes and no. I mean, people often ask, Chuck, what extent is co-housing shifting over the years? And frankly, the way I approach it, it's always exactly the same. My job, like an anthropologist, is to figure out exactly who this population is, who this culture is, the subculture really, of 50 adults. Who are they exactly? And what are their norms and mores and habits and all the rest? And then, and then even more importantly, who do they want to be? For example, I'm always amazed how many senior co-housing groups I work with where the seniors say, you know, Chuck, I've been uh, part of the problem from a global warming point of view for too long, for my whole life. I mean, I used to just jump in the Cadillac and the station wagon and take the family off for a camping trip you know, a hundred miles away, just routinely. Now I want to figure out how to live in the village and be part of the solution. So there's differences between those two camps. But anyway, that said, yes, the methodology hasn't changed. You know, who are these people? But the results have changed because over the years, I can't help but find it absolutely important and critical to become a better and better listener. I've actually learned a lot more who they really are than my prejudices that I had in the beginning. So that shifts things as I figure out who they really, really are. Who they really are is whether I like it or not, is they're still in denial and we just have to work around their idiosyncrasies and, you know, get them into the community where everything will be worked out eventually. In other words, it used to be that people would argue for things like solid countertops, for example. And now sometimes people argue for tile countertops. And of course, my first inclination is, you really don't want that. But I don't say that. And if it turns out that that's what goes in, I just let it happen because that's small potatoes compared to the big priorities that are being addressed, if you know what I mean. Some people don't want to acknowledge that they are growing older and look into the future and might have functional limitations at one point. Related to this, I think Barbara's question is a good one. She says, I want to know how you have incorporated universal design in your work so that people with disabilities and older people who want to age in place can live there comfortable. And for example, what about the concept of visitability where every unit has a zero barrier entrance and one accessible bathroom toilet downstairs? That way disabled residents can visit their neighbors. That's really a good question. In a way, it relates to the last question around this shifting and, and what have you. I think people are increasingly getting out of denial about their mobility later in life, but that's been a hard one for groups to embrace. For example, what I've really come to grips with is that nobody really gets out of denial. I mean, I can't remember any individual that I felt like, my God, that person is really out of denial. They are still in denial to some extent but maybe they're two thirds or three quarters of the way out of denial so that they will embrace the notion of universal design. I'm a big believer, of course, if you read my first book about senior causing, I'll have a couple chapters just on universal design. And I always leave like 18 inches towards the front door on the strike side of the door so that it's easy to get out of the door with a wheelchair and all the rest. And I'm always amazed. I come back and visit a couple years later and they always have hired somebody to fill in that 18 inches with storage, you know, storage, storage, storage. There's, there's so much about that. That's a part of our culture. You know, that I could do a lecture just on that line item. So I truly and strongly believe in not 
dictating anything to the group. I strongly believe in listening to them as acutely as possible. But of course, it does play a role how much they are in denial or not. And I don't want to discount their priorities. And sometimes their priority, their number one priority is just affording to get in the damn village. You know what I mean? And sometimes that means sacrificing the 18 inches on the strike side, et cetera. But, you know, they always figure it out and they figure it out together. I mean, these things aren't hard to rehab and you have 20 neighbors next to you who really cares about you. I can't tell you how many ramps that we've been building at my co-housing community in the last 18 years. And we've been doing it together. If we had done it originally, we would have precluded a lot of people from being able to afford to get into their houses. So, you know, I'd say that we're happy to have John and, and Claudia with us because they couldn't afford it. And we're also glad that we were all able to chip in and build them a ramp. It's a complicated dynamic and it's not just based on a code book or even on academics notions of what is accessible and what isn't acceptable because it's all ensconced in a culture. You know, the culture is swimming in dollars concerns and they're swimming in cultural concerns and visibility and self-identity. So there's no good prescription. I'm curious now, since you talked about ramps, do your new housing communities have barrier-free entries? Totally. And actually where I live, we have 17 roll-in houses out of 34 because some houses upstairs. But we had a woman who lived upstairs who, believe it or not, moved from assisted care, which when does that happen? You move from assisted care into your own apartment. That virtually never happens unless you're moving into a co-housing community. And the first thing we did was put an inclinator, you know, one of those things you sit in and it takes you upstairs to get into our house. But what was first and foremost, most important to her was that she lived in a community and that she lived upstairs, largely because of her own prejudices. If I live downstairs, I'll hear my neighbors. You're dealing with all these crazy prejudices that people come to the table with. It's, it's rife and rich with psychology and all the rest that no prescription is going to solve because people don't want to be prescribed on. You know, it's as bad as wearing masks or not wearing masks. You know, we have 30% of our population in the county who don't want to wear masks. They don't want to be prescribed to. And it's a lot less than that in the co-housing. But still, you know, we have a little bit of a Yahoo culture that we can't completely corral and may or may not accomplish that. And I think personal preferences are important. And if the person wants to live on the second floor and Rada goes up in an inclinator than walking in by herself, then this is her personal preference. And I think that's really important to honor that. Especially when you factor in things like, you know, she's the coolest person you ever want to know. And I've always wanted to live in an upstairs apartment. I mean, how do you deal with that? These dreams from forever. She's always lived in a single family house and then the assisted care. Now we figured out a way to accommodate her and more power to her. A question from Rachel. It takes a lot of work to build pure co-housing communities. And there are 165 of those. But you also mentioned this co-housing inspired communities. What makes these communities different from co-housing? Is it the intention? The most major thing is it might look like a co-housing in the plans and it might look like a co-housing in the buildings. You might walk into this unit and go, I don't know if this is co-housing or not, but there's one major thing. 
if the future residents were involved in the design and the planning and the organization of the community, then it's co-housing basically. But you know, that's two to three years of them being involved with making their village happen. That's a co-housing. If they were involved, it's not co-housing. It's very clear. That said, I mentioned in the beginning, the 450 people hours, there's way too many co-housing communities in the US that has hundred people hours or 150 people hours in the common house. In other words, it was a big waste of money. And it's because the group didn't have a good facilitator that helped them find out who they really were and who they really would become, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't just build something that looks like a co-housing community and assume that will be. Not only if you don't have the group involved, but even if you do have the group involved, it needs really good facilitation, frankly. Yeah, that makes sense, sort of a community leader, but the inhabitants change over time. They move to other parts of the country, they die, you know, life circumstances changes. So when you move into an established co-housing community, how does this work in your experience and how does this sort of impact the rest of the community? It seems like a very dynamic process, no? Yes and no. I mean, of course, people worry about newcomers shifting the culture. And for the most part, they've shifted their culture for the better. Like I said, we've had seven people die. We moved in with a lot of capable young people and they've gotten, you know, extraordinary careers, which has led them to all over the country. So we've had turnover. But the new people, first of all, they were not as burned out as all the people who planned the project from the beginning. They brought Mm -hmm. a lot of great new energy to the table and were willing to organize new things. For example, we did not have a great vegetable garden at first. And a couple of years later, a new person moved in and organized a half acre garden. And it's just been phenomenal to have right there on site. And they've organized the shared cars. They've organized a lot of the software where the original organized the hardware. That said, the hardware, you know, really does establish the culture in a big way to all the things that we have built to share and, and didn't build to share equally. It's just like a small town, you know, let's say on the ocean, that's a seafaring culture. You have to look back at what makes a culture a culture. And the hardscape makes a lot of that difference. I worked in Southeast Africa for a year and I had this really interesting job moving villages that were in in harm's way, whether flooding or one thing or another. A small town on the lake had a ton of fishing culture and boating culture. And we have 500 pine trees on our site. We have a very mountainous neighborhood. (laughs) I mean, our site is actually mountainous and we're in the middle of the Tahoe National Forest. So that's its own culture. The co-housing has established its own norms. For example, we have common dinner available in the common house six nights a week. When I lived in Emeryville, we had a guy who was moving in and he said, well, I love this whole co-housing thing and everything, but I don't know if I could cook dinner for my neighbors. And one of our sage elders said, hey, Jim, join me to the door, would you? You know, we were in the common house after dinner and she said, you know, grab your stuff. There's a whole world out there if you don't want to cook dinner for your neighbors, but here we cook dinner for our neighbors. And so we're unabashed about having some cultural norms that fit us and we established early on. And we invite anybody who joins us to want to do the same things, although we can and do make amendments to our first agreements, but it's it's a process basically. You don't get to just move in and decide you're not going to cook dinner for your neighbors now. I mean, because we expect you to. Right. It all makes sense. We have so many planned communities 
small lots, houses close together. I wonder, have you ever had like a rebellion in one of these sort of standard planned communities and they converted to co-housing? You know, that doesn't happen in the U.S. much. I've never seen it per se that I can think of. There are neighborhoods in the U.S. where, for example, in Street in Davis, that's a well-known one where a couple bought a house. They wanted to turn the whole neighborhood into co-housing. They invited their friends to buy the house next door when it was mm. for sale. And now that I think they're up to 14 or 16 households that all live in the same place. It's all been one big retrofit. I designed their common house and some other common facilities on site. The nature, the complexion of the whole neighborhood is quite different. And it's obvious, it's palpable that people know and care about each other, but it's pretty hard to do. In Denmark, it's much more obvious. They have what's called a chapter 44 street and lots of other ways that you can take regular single family houses or other housing and turn them into co-housing. Chapter 44 street, you can actually vote on the street to actually close the street and only park at the ends of the street and in the middle of the street, take out all the asphalt, put in sand, have sandboxes, volleyball courts, picnic tables, you know, barbecues and all this stuff, which will definitely build community. Big multifamily housing projects, they've done a great job of shifting them to having a big co-housing component, but it's a serious effort and they've figured out how to do it. That makes so much sense because the majority, we have all this in existing neighborhoods, which actually have some good old infrastructures could be converted if there was the will. Got to go but, to a yes. meeting, we're getting a shared Tesla at our co-housing. So I want to be in on that. Good talking to you guys. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you, everybody. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.